Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Graveside Picnic, and this is your host, Carlo, speaking to you as a phantom through the microphone. Um, And with me is uh, Chris Burke. Um, uh, Chris, what exactly, I mean, you have uh, a story out on Dim Shores, and uh, you also work in other places as well? Yeah, yeah. So other than the Dim Shores presents, uh, my first one, a uh, first story appeared in Night Script Volume One, and then lately I've been writing some film criticism, uh, just because that's been what's been sparking the inspiration. So, uh, but you know, I've I've done book reviews uh, for WeirdFictionReview.com as well. So I've got a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of you know a variety in terms of what I feel like writing when I feel like writing. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. All right, and today we're going to be discussing uh, the Robert W. Chambers. Uh, short story the repairer of reputations and uh i I had uh i mean you had you'd mentioned that you wanted to discuss this with us uh i had just recently reread this and um so let me ask you this uh chris what uh what experience or what you know when when was the first time that uh, you read this and you know what's been your experience with it well, like a lot of people, I, I was first introduced to it uh, through True Detective Season 1. And um, at around that same time, I was getting a little bit more involved in contemporary weird fiction. So I was starting to see a lot of names that I hadn't really paid attention to before. Uh, after after I read the weird, uh, the Vandermeer anthology, I really started reading a lot more contemporary weird fiction writers. And so in with a lot of like mutual acquaintances and stuff, I would often hear Chambers discussed. And like I had a lot of mutual acquaintances with Joe Pulver, who has done a lot of work at uh, keeping Robert W. Chambers in the uh, in the mindset of, or in the mind of the horror community, I think. Uh, so that's another channel where I heard whispers about Robert Chambers. But then I'd say it's been about, I don't know, six, seven years, maybe about six years since I first read the King in Yellow stories. And um, yeah, it was it was nice to dive back in and reread this one along. And I also reread the Yellow Sign while I was at it. Mm, OK, uh, that's probably up next on my uh, on my reading to to read list. Um, mainly because uh, I've heard good things about that one as well. And as you can imagine, I, 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 uh, have not read all the way through the book. Um, in, in part because I, I felt like this, after this story, this being the opener, the other ones feel a little bit, they're not bad. It's just that they're, they, they just don't have the oomph that this one has. And I don't know exactly why that is. But it, it this one really, really stays with me all the time. Um and and, and weirdly, the the <laughs> the way I found out about the story, uh it, it it was recommended to me for like years and years ago by uh, one of my best friends back home, um, because he had bought uh the Chaosium uh reprints 
and they had like the the Hastur cycle where it yeah. sort of collected a bunch of like existing like it had some reprints and then like some more I mean obviously it was all reprints but some some of the older stuff and some of the the more recent stuff as well uh and, and those are I mean when they were coming out they were really good uh sort of a a really good entry point to dip your toes into the the waters of all the mythos stuff um but i the weird thing is i never read it then no, i sort I, of remembered it like out of the blue like maybe five years ago maybe i sort of picked it out of the blue and looked it up and just sort of tore through it like i read it in one sitting and i was like wow just really really uh, you know like blew my hair back i, I gotta admit and and I, I think part of it is the the way it's structured and the way it sort of hints at what's going on you know um yeah yeah i think um oh sorry uh, i i think it feels like it packs a little more punch because it's it's bigger in some ways in scope where it's it's reimagining the entire united states as a as a country whereas a lot of the other ones that are that are shorter and feel a little bit more like vignettes have a much more intimate feel to them, even though this story is also very much fairly intimate about this particular main character. Uh, but it just it reaches a little bit more in terms of scope in the in the physical world. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those. Um, and I, I I sometimes it doesn't work right. The the the, the puzzle stories um, and this presents you with a puzzle like once you finish it uh, and the puzzle is, you know, what exactly happened <laughs> how much of this recollection because it's pretty made pretty clear um i think within the first couple of pages uh that the main character has fallen off his horse suffered a, a head injury and on top of that had been like he he'd suffered a, a head injury had been sent to a sanatorium um and while convalescing, uh, had run up against a copy of the eponymous play, the, the eponymous play uh, that the entire collection is named after, The King in Yellow. And uh, this has you know, sort of become all the rage. It's, it's, it's actually uh, described uh, in sort of a pandemic sort of language, that it's a disease that's ripping through Europe. And it's such an interesting conceit, right? The idea yeah. of sort of like a, a work of art that spreads like a, I mean, I guess we could call it a meme at this point, but it's sort of like viral, right? Yeah, there is that element there. And also, I think it's interesting how it talks about like the re the response to this supposedly dangerous text where it's like an entire country is mobilizing to shut it down. And, you know, we can't even do that in a real pandemic today. But I, I think it's an interesting I mean, I would in some ways, I wouldn't really say that the word dystopian is appropriate for this story. but it is building a hypothetical future and like there's all kinds of miserable things in that, but it, it feels like uh, a, sh a short truncated version of something that's moving toward a dystopian story. And I think the fact that it pulls in these like bits and pieces of, Oh, this is what happened in France when the King in yellow was published and they scrambled to get rid of it and how they're talking about the scope of, of the book itself being worldwide, I think is an interesting way of, of making this feel like a really big um, story and scope instead of just one person. Right. Right. And so, and it's weird because it's, it's a play that people are reading rather than seeing performed, or at least maybe, maybe it's the fact that it, it maybe I, I believe um, 
and and I was digging a, a little bit into Chambers' history. Like, there's two two factors here which sort of inform this, right? Um, the fact that he lived in the Paris Commune, and apparently there was like this huge outbreak of syphilis in the Commune, and he he'd watched people that he knew or other artists uh, in in the Commune just basically in late stages of syphilis just be completely driven out of their minds Uh, Um, yeah that makes sense i didn't know that yeah it's it's weird and uh so uh, you know the the i think the tip off there is the color yellow as a harbinger it's it's an old timey Uh, i think we may have lost some of the symbolism but uh that is in fact you know sort of the indicator of plague or disease decay uh and so the idea of a a work of like he sort of smashed together i guess the idea of art in a commune <laughs> and the idea of art as a disease and that's just sort of such a a wild premise uh but then you i think uh salome had been uh released not too long before he returned to the US and that caused an entire thing happening in in England. So uh, I I wonder if the because he mentions that in London they're trying you know they're they're basically banning it from being uh, sold there as well. And I have to wonder if that's not him sort of like well you know taking from real life as most people do when you, they write and sort of making it into sort of uh, introducing it into a story at a remove you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting, and it actually, you know, it it fills in you know some gaps, I think, on some of the other stories because if you look at the yellow sign, the the theme of art, uh, being in some way reflective or causative, um, you know, psychologically or to a malady of some kind, uh, that's a big, that's basically the the main conceit of that story, uh, and I think also just another thing to keep in mind is that. You know, there are times where I was reminded of the ideas that are in uh, Portrait of Dorian Gray, and you know that had come out five years before The King in Yellow, so I'm guessing it was surely on his mind in some way uh, when you look at, well, the fact that Mr. Wilde in The Repairer of Reputations is there. I'm not saying that that's definitely a reference, but it could be, uh, especially when you look at the context of you know art as you know reflective of decay or, or something along those lines, and that's that's a big part of the yellow sign that comes right before The Repairer of Reputations. Well, I mean, and it's weird because, um, you know, we, we, we say that Chambers was in the Paris Commune, but, you know, just to be clear, he was an artist. Like, he was an artist first before he came back and decided to write. Uh, and, and, like, he was, like, really prolific. Like, he had, like, 89 books, uh, of which I think one of the few that is still in print is this one, the, the collection of the King and Yellow stories. Yeah. And, uh, uh, uh like something like 20 or 24 different um, adaptations, you know, silent movies that were adapted from his works. And you're like, wow, this guy was like really there. Yeah. Um, he really wrote, uh, you know, I read the introduction uh, in the Dover edition that I went off of here. And, and this is an introduction that was written way back in 1969. And even at that time, uh, his reputation was being talked about one that was as one that's largely being forgotten except for the King in Yellow. Like he wrote so many adventure and romance and historical novels uh, that the irony in the introduction that's pointed out is that his books were so mass produced and available that the demand was just 
not there eventually, and people would just toss them. And eventually, those are the books that got forgotten about. Whereas The King in Yellow, which was never at the time, I think one of his best sellers or best known pieces, has kind of just kept chugging along as, you know, that sort of regional band that's been performing for 20 years and making a career out of it, but nobody, like, they're not necessarily big stars, you know? Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, and that was even observed in 1969 when this was written. And weirdly, I mean, this is where our, our buddy, uh, the horrible, horrible person that we, we must always, uh, you know, spit on the ground when you, we mention his name, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, basically s- sort of pointed out that this could have been great. Uh, I think is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but mainly he says that he, he set this collection aside as really good and based some stuff off of it. But in general, his uh, assessment of uh, of Chambers was that you know he he could have ha- he could have done better you know, <laughs> but yeah. in part I mean and, and funnily but funnily the his uh, his touching and using some of the aspects of like the yellow sign and the king of king in yellow and Hastur, which isn't a a, a complete. Um, invention of chambers is either i believe that's from beers beers um uh you know he just by dint of placing it tangential to the mythos uh stuff basically put it into like a time capsule and preserved it and it's such a weird thing because like i'm not denying that lovecraft had some very very bad views but if you read this, you go, oh, this, this is sort of contemporary. <laughs> like it's it's not exactly contemporary, but the 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 sentiments that set up like the background to this alternate America and the repair the repair of reputations, you know, it sort of puts you on your back heel because you're like, yeah, this is sort of presented as utopic, but then they talk about, well, you know, all those Jewish people, they were forcibly expulsed. And uh, there was a, a it was it an independent state Suwannee for all the all the black people to live in. And now we have racial harmony. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely picked up on a lot more of the details there than I did the first time around. And I, I feel like it's still a little bit mystifying sometimes trying to connect the the scene he's setting as as his hypothetical 1920 future uh and and understanding how much of that was just a hypothetical for him at that time versus how much of it was was real but still seems just as removed from today but i mean it's not like most of these fundamental problems have gone anywhere um but i, I thought that the the drawing the stage of 1920 america was something I paid more attention to than I did the first time around. And that I think really helped crystallize the general action of the story for me in a way that it just didn't really the first time for me. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, uh, because I, I was, you know, like I said, I was reading this rather recently. And one of the things that just immediately leapt out at me is the fact that he's, he's setting this, he's writing this in 1895 and he's setting this in 1920. And like within the first, two sentences or three or whatever he's like talking about like the war with germany incident upon that country's seizure of the samoan islands and so on and I you're like still in new jersey too if i remember right there's like some soldiers left in new jersey from germany i think yes yes 
Uh, I mean, it, it's great, but it's also like, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> he was like, in some of this, I mean, I don't know if it's outright guesses. I, I would think not. Like, there's a couple of things here that make sense to me at the time, because like, you know, uh, the idea of an American empire was not something that just sort of came out of the blue, you know, when Teddy Roosevelt just took office, it, it had been around, it, it had been around for a while. Um, and like, so, so they make mention of the Samoan islands. Uh, they say that the investments in Cuba and in uh, what is it? Hawaii had borne fruit. Uh, and you're like, wait. And I looked up the dates and it's like, it's close enough that he was probably it was probably like in the zeitgeist you know it's yeah. he, he was he you didn't have to be and also like chambers was like part of the elite he was not like some schlub you know he was like a from a well well to do family so he probably had good sources for all of his information and probably got you know um you know the best information you could get you know from you know the news and whatnot and who he's who he hung around with uh so it's not it's not too much of a leap to go like well he was probably guessing rather well uh and so it it sort of sort of shocks you when you read like something that's written like what is it like 25 yeah like 25 years beforehand Right. Yeah. No, I mean, he's got a lot. I, I had some of the same thoughts myself when I was sort of reading through the itemized list of what America we're in right now. And uh, it was like, you know, either some of this is really prescient or just some of these problems are even older than I thought, like the like the specifics of Germany or something and antagonizing with Germany. And, um, yeah, and, and I think that probably he's reasonable to assume that um, the United States would have imperial aspirations just because like it's an extension of manifest destiny to one to one degree or another and that goes all the way back to the beginning of the country so i think you know i think in in some ways he's making some really astute observations that were probably limited to just like the 1890s or whatever but then some of them i think are just so large in scope that they're just a fundamental part of of the country he's talking about yeah. Although there are some wild ones where it's like, oh, well, and, and the, the Indian problem was solved by just making an Indian mounted cavalry that that rides around in, in full costume. And you're like, that seems weird. That's real simple, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, it's also like a weird image, right? It's like, so hold on. They're, they're basically cosplaying as the most caricatured versions of themselves. What? <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't read too well. It it also just feels like a really kind of a throwaway line here. Like he gives like one line per one very large ethnic group, which I realize in the mindset that those might that might be how you would group people together. But then it's like you're trying to f fill in a recipe of problems that have, quote unquote, been solved in this United States. And they're just like, you get one sentence, you get one sentence, you get one sentence. And it's like, OK, well, I guess that's what we have to go on. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's part of the tendency of these stories to be a little bit more gestural. Like they're, they're just kind of gesturing you toward a theme without revealing a whole lot. And you never really learn a whole lot about what the King and yellow book itself even consists of. Yeah. Well, but you can't read it because it would turn you crazy. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think that's a, it's, it's actually the, the sort of the, the in story explanation for why you would not have, the text of the King in Yellow in the book that is titled in the the collection of stories titled after the play is 
it makes perfect sense. Like it, it, it also does the thing that I wish more uh, sort of genre fiction of today would, would just let people imagine because our imaginations are better than, you know, I'll, I, I could try my hand at making a fictional uh, sort of like a fictional in story text. It might not be as good as you imagine it though. Yeah, I mean, usually the reader's imagination is going to fill in plenty of detail and, and make it more convincing. You don't have to necessarily hold people's hands, you know. I, I think, uh, and I think this is one that sometimes actually suffers a little bit from underselling at times, not always, but at times, um, and, and just making me want to know just a tiny bit more. I don't need everything explained, but I'd like one more detail here and there sometimes with the stories, um, mm-hmm. and and also like when you compare. I mean, these stories, I, I would say they have some overlap with Edgar Allan Poe, but they're very different in terms of um, the kinds of ambiguity they go for and the kinds of details they really focus on, apart from color. They both like color a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, I found myself thinking about Poe at times, uh, just in terms of having a, a short, sharp effect rather than being very expansive. Right. Well, I mean, I, I go back and forth because I think that the intention here is precisely that sort of ambivalence, right? Uh, It's trying to walk that knife's edge by like, it it has this trick where it'll give you like, like the, what is it? The, the description, let me look it up here. The description of how he imagines uh, Carcosa uh, after he, he, he reads the King in yellow is rather evocative and a, a, a great image. And it, cements that this is not earth you know it's not anywhere that we know anyway and it's uh you know what is it uh this this the this is the thing that troubles me for i cannot forget carcosa where the black stars hang in the heavens where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon when the twin suns sink in the lake of holly and my mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask uh i pray god will curse the writer as the writer has cursed the world with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth, a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. I mean, like, come on, that is great. Yeah. But I mean, put to your point, like that's probably the most sort of evocative imagery you get. Um, And I mean, I don't want to undersell it because a lot of the other stuff is, is great. But it's it's also like very grimy, and once you get to the end, you wonder, okay, so <laughs> who who is real here? <laughs> and that's I think the knife said he's trying to sort of navigate, and sometimes he slips. I feel to your point, you know, I, I think that you're right. Um, there are a couple moments where you're like, eh, it could have used a little bit more here. Yeah, and I, I think, and that's that's fine. I'd rather err on the side of underselling most of the time, anyway, uh, than than overdoing it. But you know, what, what interests me is that, like, you only really even even the items he's getting detailed about in the passage that you just read, the reader only knows like a vague bit about each of the specific things that he refers to, like pallid mask. You don't really know what that refers to in any kind of specific way. You just know that's a creepy image, and mm-hmm. it's capitalized, and that sounds scary too. Um, but that's what I, it's like, he, he's, um, he's painting an interesting image that you never really get to see the whole thing of, which makes sense for the themes of, of these types of stories. Well, I mean, it also lets you sort of fill in stuff, you know, it's, 
you know, that, that meme that was going around, you know, that the clone wars and you know, the what, <laughs> and you're like, because your mind starts filling in blanks and wants to create a pattern where there's not really enough to, to really make up. Uh, and I think that it, that's what, you know, he's trying to do. He's trying to toy with you and make you get scared of the story without really showing you a monster or, you know, like, and then on the edge of the hook was his name. You know, there's no, he's not trying to do any of that. Um, and I think he, he manages to do some really interesting stuff because like, uh, so, so do we want to, I mean, this is mostly a story about completely fucked vibes. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think that you can necessarily spoil too much about it. Uh, but I'll, I'll throw it out, you know, in case anyone has never read the, the, the repair of reputations, the first story in Robert W. Chambers's uh, collection, the King in yellow stop here. We're going to discuss some spoilers regarding the, the story that is not at the beginning, go read it and come back. Okay. That done. I've done my due diligence folks. Um, but like uh, one of the ways that he, I feel like he does um, something really interesting is he'll have the main character, Hildred Castain, uh, who has a cousin, Louis Castain, who is like in the army. He's like a, I forget his rank at the beginning, but he ends up being a captain in the army. He's got his own, by the end, he's got his own regiment and he's going to go, you know, do something or other. And um, Hildred, after his knock on the noggin and his reading of the King in Yellow play past act two, uh, or in, uh, you know, fully uh, act two and so on, uh, basically uh, is convinced that he and his cousin are in the royal lineage of the of Hastur somehow. There is a, a mysterious line that has descended from the, the Hyades. Uh, so you've got you've got some kind of cosmic royalty and uh, lineage that and um, I, yeah, they, they leave a lot of that vague, but you, you don't really know if the lineage thing that that hildred is talking about is entirely a concoction of his or how much of it might be a concoction of of wilds but yeah that's it's a mysterious lineage of some sort mm -hmm. and so he he uh he basically has fallen in with this uh with this very weird character who i'm not entirely sure he's very short and i'm not entirely sure if he is a little person uh because he mentioned, they make mention like he's his skull shape. Yes, folks. Chambers was very interested in the skull shape. We got phrenology in the house. Well, I mean, uh, it, it's funny because he he actually includes the the full line where he's like, "Oh, his skull is the, like those of the the people that are considered to be uh, you know like criminal, criminally insane or whatever." And you're like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, that reads a little different in 2021 than it must have then, but. Um... For the sake oh, no, of the story, I, th <laughs> I mean, honestly, uh, if I can, we can do an aside. I think that it, it is of the time because, like, let's not forget, he's. Uh, I mean, I've heard that this is supposed to be a parody of a lot of the progressive uh, ideas at the time, and I mean, I'm not entirely sure about the parody aspect of it, but definitely, uh, if you draw a logical conclusion to some of the stuff that they believed at the time, which is 
a lot of it was eugenics. I mean, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to say, folks, <laughs> you know, HP, Howie P did not make that shit up all in his own. And you know, this was a, a, a thing that was that gripped the nation for several decades. And, you know, it sort of straddled the, the turn of the century. Um, but but yeah, anyway, uh, so he, he has this guy named Wild that is a repairer of reputation. Uh, and supposedly he's got like he tells Hildred that he's got at least what is it a thousand or ten thousand people that he's uh repaired their reputations that would you know put their lives on the line for him or something. Yeah, he he occasionally references like um like putting the screws to someone or I forget how he put maybe it's that way that he puts it, but he he has like this vague menacing sense behind him, and he's got this logbook of. Uh, all these people and, and supposedly like this this massive network of influencers for lack of a better word and and people who in some way he can force them to do a favor of some kind uh, in order to accomplish whatever ends i mean in post q this sounds very much like old-timey q right mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean uh but but you know uh, i would just say that he he's probably just blackmailing people uh left and right and that's yeah. how he brings them under sway uh, and repairs their reputation, so to speak. Um, but uh, in any case, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, instances. Well, and, and uh, Wild has a cat who uh, he keeps around, even though they hate each other. And the cat will, you know, like just launch himself at Wild and like take like scratches his face and shit like that. Uh, oh, Wild has his left hand has no fingers on it, and he's got false ears. So he's got little nubbins where his ears would be, and he's got little wax ears that are pink wax uh, that don't sort of match up because Wild himself is weirdly yellow tinged. Yep. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not thinking that that's like a. That he's trying to say anything other than that he probably looks yellow. Yeah, he's a, he's an old guy, and they they talk about him possibly having dementia, and so it, it's he seems to be a person who is in general poor health, you know, apart from all the other weird stuff he's up to. Uh, but the the cat stuff, the first time I read that, I was mostly just thinking, what the hell is with this damn cat, and why does any of this matter? And then like when I read it this time, I found that much more humorous, honestly. This this cat and his random outbursts of potential of lethal violence against his supposed owner or human uh and it's just it's very anomalous you don't you know, he's just the cat is out here inflicting damage on this old guy and yet he's still around and i don't know i mean maybe there's more to it than than just the um the purpose in the story but i thought it was funny honestly it it does come across as like weirdly funny like like the cat person who who's taken in a feral cat and is convinced, no, I, I can fix them. The, the, they'll finally love me. Exactly. Uh, I mean, um, and so then uh, between Hildred and Wild, uh, they've come to the, like this conclusion, like we'd mentioned before, that, um, that for uh, the King in Yellow to really, uh, really take sway, uh, Hildred has to be the one that is the in the lineage right he has to eliminate his his cousin and uh send him in, send him to exile and by god don't let him marry because that means he'll have kids or something 
uh, and uh, that will allow Hildred to become the what is it? The Imperial Decree of America is something, some, I guess, some tattered piece of paper that Wild has sort of scribbled on the the precepts of the Imperial the, the American American Empire that uh, Hildred would be um, inheriting. And uh, he meets up with Louis uh, in in a park at midnight, hands him like the the decree, and sort of tells him, "You're supposed to be the emperor, but I'm taking the throne. I'm ta- and you have to back me. Otherwise, you know, uh, Mister Wild has uh, what is it, a thousand people that can come after you and can raise up to a hundred thousand if he wanted to across the, across the nation. And you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And, and that's the thing. His, um, his, his cousin, Louis, uh, sort of reacts the way that you would, if someone told you something that doesn't sound based in reality, he's trying to play it off, but he's like, he reacts like, like he's halfway through reading the, the decree and he's like mouths rubbish and stuff like that. (laughs) And it's like, Mm -hmm. what? Yeah, and and this is like the night before he's set to be sent out to California for for the with the military, and so he's going to marry his his betrothed uh, Constance uh, ahead of schedule, and that's why there's this midnight meeting coming up. But I, I think I think it's interesting how in this scene, especially, there's the ambiguity threaded through about how much actual power Wild has to compel people to do things, because in the background of this conversation happening, you've got that other guy. Uh, the bank employee who yeah. he had been basically coerced into supposedly having to kill um, Hauberk and Constance, Constance being the fiance. Uh, and in the backdrop, he he just runs into one of those lethal chambers, if I remember correctly. Uh, mm-hmm. And you don't know exactly if he's done it or not. But either way, you know that this guy who's supposed to be an agent of Mr. Wild has just gone in to one of these suicide chambers. Yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, that's another thing that's uh, that's really fascinating that we, we may have jumped over is the fact that uh, the government, apart from all of the uh, the, the quelling of unrest and, you know, it's a, harma- a harmonious America, but brand new suicide chambers. <laughs> and they're, they're like these uh, suicide chambers that have like this classical architecture to them. And, you know, they're they're very sort of uh, they, they they sound very. Uh, very highfalutin, you know, very nice. Very nice. Culture. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, but yeah. So uh, Vance uh, sort of throws himself against the doors and, and leaps into the, the, the closest suicide chamber. And uh, Hildred is convinced, ah, he got him. And so he <laughs> runs back to uh, because he's in the park across the way from from like Hauberk's place, which Wild's place is on the third floor above. Uh, Hauberk's establishment and he runs upstairs uh, with his crown because he brought his crown and his little uh, robe with the yellow sign on it and shit like that to you know assume assume the throne and uh, finds that Wild is like you know groaning just slowly dying because the cat has finally attacked him to lethal you know he's <laughs> with extreme prejudice finally uh, and, yeah. and ripped open his throat uh, and, uh, I just find it hilarious because, uh, as they're sort of like, he's pursued there and they, they bust down the door 
And, you know, he's like, ah, the police came at me, but they found my sharp teeth. And, you know, then there was more of them and so on and so forth. And he's like, you know, ranting about how they, they couldn't possibly take the crown of, you know, curse you, you know, you've taken the crown of uh, the, the emperor of America or whatever. And, uh, and then the, the, the editor's note, um, you know, Hildred Castain died, <laughs> died immediately in a, uh, what is it? Uh, Home for the criminally uh, insane. I think home for the criminally insane. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, they, they. I feel like that's like an editor's note. To be honest, like not just that he included it, but maybe an editor was like, uh, "Hey, Bobby, <laughs> what happened to the guy? You just left it here." Yeah, that that last part is rather abrupt. Um, but I, I do like in general where things ended up uh, in that closing scene with with that rush um, into Wild's apartment and. Yeah, the the reveal about him dying of the cat wounds, I thought was an interesting choice given how much of it has been sort of played off as, to me, black comedy. But obviously, there's more seriousness to it. But I I I, have, I found myself wondering: is are we supposed to interpret this cat not just as being feral, but perhaps having seen some of the text of the King in Yellow, or is it is it dependent on like human comprehension of the words, or is it is there some other visual component that could drive a cat to a murderous frenzy? Um, is an open question that I have the second time around. I mean, it could also just be that the cat, you know, like, uh, and, and, and I'm just coming spitballing this right now. Um, but I'm wondering if the cat as an animal, right. As a, a sort of a, a signifier of the natural quote world end quote, um, doesn't, you know, sort of sense that there's something very wrong with wild, uh, and that, you know, since Wilde has probably, you know, he, he serves Hastur, uh, he's probably read The King in Yellow mm-hmm. all the way through, many times, in fact. And, um, and so he is so far gone that the cat now senses it. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't be, know. Yeah. Or just random chaotic element. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, so much of the beauty of the story is how, how many different ways you can read it like there, there's just really a, a strong through line of ambiguity that that is more effective than a lot of cases where am- ambiguity is used as like the underpinning of a story yeah and i i think if we if we can circle back to uh the the technique that chambers uses here it's it's specifically that that technique where he has hildred say something that sounds delusional and th- you actually get, even though Hildred believes what he says, he also, I guess because he's also has this ball of resentment about, he doesn't want people to think he has mental issues, okay? Mm-hmm. And I will kill you if you tell me that I have problems with my brain, <laughs> you know? He's a little defensive, and, yeah. Yeah, he's a little defensive. So, so the funny thing is that he will say something that he truly believes, but will then honestly report the reaction of the other person because it's an irritant to him. Yeah, yeah. The whole time, like he's he's reassuring, like well, the the audience of the story and also the characters in the story that he is not actually insane and that he takes great offense to the implications of that. And yeah, you know, this whole time he's, he's talked and I, I was actually really struck by one particular bit of the dialogue between him and Louis, where, um, you know, he asked Louis to correct something he said and say, instead of saying that his insanity was cured or he got better, 
it said it should be that he was found never to have been insane at all, which is a distinction that he gets hung up on. And like, obviously, the reader is supposed to understand that there's a lot more context to that. Uh, but I just think that's a really interesting way of showing what he's motivated by and how it might not be um, all that sensible. <laughs> uh, I mean, apart right. from the fact that on its face value, it's not sensible, but, you know, there, there's layers there. Yeah, yeah. But I, I just find it to be such an interesting character quirk that Chambers has included there that, yeah, he sure he believes all these weird things. It sounds delusional, but he's so defensive about you thinking that he's crazy, that he will report to you that he was he grew angry when, you know, Hallberg rolled his eyes. You know, he thought I didn't see him, but he rolled his eyes. I saw him. Yeah. Yeah. And then how much of funny, that? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's such a funny detail, is all. Yeah, and then you have to wonder how much of his reporting of that reaction is just him seeing what he what he thinks he's seeing because he's so defensive about it, and how much of it is is really happening outside of his head. And I mean, the whole all of those could be to some degree ambiguous, but obviously he's a little bit at odds um, the whole time with other people, one way or another. Yeah, I mean, one of the the obvious um, things that I, I wonder about if. Uh, Speaking of inspirations, is was Chambers inspired by like the the dude in San Francisco, Emperor Norton the uh, First, to sort of draw up some sort of character that thought they were an emperor, they were going to be an emperor of the United States? I don't know. Oh wow, you know, I think I heard about that uh, one time a long time ago and I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I mean, if that's something that really, there was really a guy who was kind of like that, it wouldn't surprise me if there's an inspiration there. Yeah. I mean, uh, Emperor Norton, the first is a, you should, you should look it up. It's, I, I think that there's a lot of PR going on, especially, you know, because he was in San Francisco and I think that San Francisco wanted people to know, you know, more about San Francisco. So we got this, this guy that thinks he's the emperor of the entire United States. In fact, um, but, uh, yeah, so much so that they, they were willing to sort of let him drop like his own little currency notes up to $10, you know, I'm guessing it was like, just, you know, let them be and people buy more stuff anyway. So, you know, where's the harm? That's the real yeah. American dream is being the emperor. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. An English guy who was, <laughs> who was raised in South Africa for most of his life. But he becomes the emperor of the United States. You know, that is truly the American dream. Um, it's okay if it's okay if you're an immigrant if you're white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise you're a problem to be solved. Unfortunately, which uh, you know, <laughs> this story deal it, it touches upon rather uh, rather br brutally but succinctly. Yep. Um, but yeah, so um, I guess uh, the other thing that I was thinking about was also like. Uh, the stuff about imperialism and like, you know, he, he points out some of the places that end up being, you know, sort of, uh, sort of terror, neo colonies. Let's say it that way. That territories is the name that the U S likes to, to use instead of colonies. Uh, but you know, Samoa, Cuba, uh, you know, Hawaii, Hawaii wasn't even the state just yet, but, uh, it, it was, it was on its way already. It's so weird uh, to, to see those things there. Um, yeah, so I guess my other, uh, I, I don't know if I have anything else to add at this point, other than it's sort of weird to have a guy who's an armorer named Hauberk. Yeah. 
I, I think that was interesting. This time I, around, when I was on this reread, I really thought about Hauberk as like a repairer of armor, as being like a physical juxtaposition of the repairer of reputation is probably at least thematically uh, why that might have been put in there. But because like he's he's off looking for these rare prizes to complete these armor sets. And they, whenever they show his shop or whenever they talk about the main character being in his shop, he's repairing something or, or fixing something or assembling uh, a, a suit of armor to get it complete for a collector. Uh, and I thought that that stuck out a little bit more because one of the ways that they mention um, the specific metallic clinking of his hammer on armor was sort of used to, oh, I forget exactly what it was compared to, but it was compared to something that was in some way cosmic uh, or just elusive to the cosmic framework of the story. I wish I had the quote handy, but that was an interesting thing that stuck out to me this time that I pro- I don't think I picked up on the first time I read it. You know, you, you say that and um, honestly, you're, you, that's a that's a great that's a great uh catch i think but also uh i mean what is a reputation but your your sort of invisible armor against yeah. you know what do you social... have but your name exactly yeah um i'm looking at the yeah I, I i'm trying to see something here and yeah i should never trouble myself uh i think it says as i say that the music of the tinkling hammer had for me this strong fascination. I would sit for hours, listening and listening, and when a stray sunbeam struck the inlaid steel, the sensation it gave me was almost too keen to endure. Um, yeah, it, it's it's he well also he's he's showing like weird um, sort of uh, what do you call it the uh, perseverance uh, type of stuff where he he gets focused on a, a particular image or sound or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, I guess we're supposed to take that as sort of like a weird, almost uh, inducing a hypnagogic state on yourself. I, I don't know how well-versed uh, Chambers uh, being born, writing this in 19, 1895, I should say, uh, was trying to um, sort of be an advocate for mental health issues. Uh, of the t- of our time, but it does sound like an interesting collection of different sort of uh, signifiers about you know what you would consider to be somebody that's not necessarily altogether well in the head. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the passage I, I was thinking of too, and I, I think that again it, it treads a great line between the ambiguity of is this a, a psychological state or is this some kind of cosmic reality that he's in tune to, and that's part of why he's in a fugue, and it was triggered by this. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I just another another great balancing act, I, I think, uh, that was done there. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so as well. I mean, um, I, there, there's just also just the plain fact that, you know, how much and, you know, is any or, you know, what parts are actually real of this, you know, the story. And I've heard it called like an anti-story uh, because I, I suppose because the the ending lets you understand, you know, it sort of recontextualizes everything you've read up until that point. And I can see how, you know, somebody would become fixated. Well, is it all, you know, it, it take a, a, a binary stance that either it's all or, or not, nothing at all is real. Uh, and I, I'm not entirely sure that that's, it's not satisfying, nor is it uh, perhaps a, a position that I'd want to apply uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like this is the type of thing where he's working on, like, he's seeing 
a reality that we might see, but with certain filters on. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that nothing is real. It's the fact that, you know, like, okay, so who is Hallberg exactly? You know, who is his cousin? <laughs> who is Wild actually himself or is Wild an actual person? You know, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think the anti-story term is both useful and a little bit of a disservice because because I, I think that um you know I, I read a little bit about that same term probably in the same spot that you did but I, I think when it talks about how repair of reputations and other of these stories are subverting expected narratives and 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 things like that I, I sit back and I think well there's still there's a plot here even if you can't know exactly what's real and what's not that's that's the theme of the story perhaps or or part of a the underpinning of the plot there but that doesn't make it overall not a story like there's there's characters there's development of things there's you know i, I don't i don't know it, it's not the best term but i kind of get what they're going for with it and mm -hmm. i know i think i see a lot of similarities between that tendency in chambers and today's weird fiction more so than i see very distinct parallels between like lovecraft and and most of what i'm i see today being written i mean not that i read everything today but that's kind of where my short story preferences tend to end up is, is feeling a little bit more like they're coming from chambers than than lovecraft yeah i i i, I really think that um he's he's able to really capture and a really uh sort of fascinating interiority that just leaves you sort of unsettled by the end because, and and to your point, I do think that it's, I think that's just called a story having a reveal at the end. It's yeah. not an anti-story necessarily, but I mean, like you said, I think it 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 helps you sort of understand what they're what they're trying to describe, which is that yeah, if you have a twist at the end, it recontextualizes everything, uh, and it may take apart parts of the story and you know sort of uh in the way that you understood them first but that doesn't necessarily mean as you said th there is an arc there hildred has a goal uh it's not a goal that you or i uh would necessarily understand because he's coming from a completely different sort of reality uh and i think that the thing that keeps that kept hitting me this reread was the fact that i mean Come on, folks. We 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 are currently watching people who exist and receive information from sources that are completely different from anything you or I are probably privy to. So it's I I, I think it's really it's really sort of feeling a little too relevant right now for me. Yeah, I mean, there's just there there are multiple different realities that exist you know if you want to partition that off uh, in the united states and the political and cultural life there like that's an easy thing to point to examples of but i, I think that uh, whether or not it was an intended part of the story uh there is something really powerful about the way the story comments on the 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 fact that we're limited only to our perceptions and to our own interior psychology for constructing the world that we experience, even though there's stuff outside of, I mean, I'm not a solipsist, but we, we still have to filter everything. We still have to project ourselves out into the world. And really our own psychology is the first line and last line of those things. And whatever we filter it by, you know, shapes our reality. And, and, you know, now we, we choose, you know, we choose our news sources instead of the news, our news, news sources choosing us where there was only like three of them. And, 
you know, anyway, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit there, but I think that's a really astute way of presenting a story like this and, and has a lot of relevance for today, like you're mentioning. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something to sort of, uh, giving us just a very almost materialistic, um, understanding of, you know, like how does a person believe these things and then sort of putting it in, uh, tension with, okay, he believes this weird, uh, perhaps alien, uh, a series of beliefs that are not based in any material world that we know. So, you know, what, what exactly does that mean? You know, what does that mean to you? And I mean, overall, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a banger of a story because I think it does present that question and, uh, and does not try to uh, say that Hildred is, you know, to be dismissed outright. It takes Hildred very seriously. Um, I mean, we, we're in Hildred's head, you know, all the time in this story. So it's it's it it would be weird for it not to take him seriously, you know. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to because that's part of the ride you signed up for. But uh, I, I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that he he finds it validating that this is not just in his head and he'll point to these little things that are meaningless out in the exterior world, like this, this written list of lineages. And, and that's juxtaposed with the, uh, the blackmail list that wild has. And so it's almost like just being able to say that this information exists in some external form is enough uh, to, to fuel the beliefs. And that lines right up with the fact that, I can just say, oh, I believe this ridiculous shit about a pizza parlor uh, because I saw a YouTube video about it. doesn't matter if there's any validity to the YouTube video. The fact that you can point to something exterior to yourself in, in a lot of cases is, quote unquote, enough to validate it. Well, and, and you can you can actually, uh, you know, you can then work backwards from that. You can establish. I mean, not that not that that's not how you prove you, you, you start out with a hypothesis, but you need to actually prove a hypothesis using scientific method in a non necessarily fully logical scientific method, empirical analysis. Uh, you know, most people do exactly that. They sort of come to a conclusion and then they realize that, okay, that's sort of contradictory or something. And if they've thought about that at all, they need to then, bolster that that conclusion that they've come to and sometimes it's completely you know batshit uh because you you just grabbed whatever's handy and you haven't really thought it out indeed but anyway uh so chris tell us about the works you have in like the the irons you have in the fire talk to me about that Irons I have in the fire. Well, um, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, the main thing I've been writing recently has been film criticism. So the the most two the two most recent things I've written have been on uh, uncut gems and uh, the movie Anything for Jackson, uh, and especially on Anything for Jackson, I, I think that that's kind of an underseen film that I'd recommend. I think it's a great horror comedy on Shutter, and uh, I just ended up you know writing a good I don't know ten pager on it and talking about you know its influences in terms of screwball comedy and how that's combined with horror and and how it walks a line that I think a lot of movies try to and, and fail. Uh, so that's kind of the most recent thing I've completed. And, and right now I'm working on a, a flash fiction piece uh, that is inspired by the works of Coyle. 
the music. So. Cool. All right. And uh, that would be, it, it, is it uh, ChristopherBurkeWords.com? Yep. That's me. Awesome. All right. Um, well, if that is it, I don't have anything else. I don't know if you have any last thoughts, dirty limericks, what have you. All out of dirty limericks. I think I'm good, but uh, but thank you. It's been great being here. Excellent. All right. Well, um, I do want to thank you for coming back, uh, coming on. I should say not coming back unless we're living in a time loop. And uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, for coming on the graveside picnic and talking about the repair of reputations. Uh, all I have to say, folks, is thanks for listening and go read Repair of Reputations if you haven't already. Uh, catch you next time on Graveside Picnic.